We are wrapping up a series on Proverbs, and uh, Proverbs is a book in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar with it, it's part of what we call the wisdom literature. It's, uh, it's about wisdom, and wisdom is not smarts. It's not about being the best read person in the room, but biblical wisdom is skill for life. It's about how to navigate life, and life is complex, and it throws a lot at you, and there's most of the time, not a super clear way to go. And so wisdom is this skill. It's a God-given skill that He wants you to have, but it comes from Him. We don't just manufacture it, and so we're dependent on Him to show us what is wisdom. So we've been looking at this book, and I'm just going to tell you on the front end that uh, it was tempting to conclude the series last week. I talked about the heart. You know, the heart is just like who we are, and I thought that might be just kind of a wrap this baby up, good last book in. And I just, I'm just going to be honest with you. I almost chickened out of this sermon. And, the, and, and, and just since uh, confession is good for the soul, the only other time that I've taught through Proverbs at Downtown Prez is uh, when I went through the women's Bible study. I taught a series on Proverbs one fall, and I did chicken out on this sermon with the, uh, with the women's Bible study. And the deal is that this There's so many Proverbs about this, I just thought, I can't, I'm sorry for the double negative English instructors, I can't not look at this. So this is going to wrap us up, and I hope it's not a weird way to end, but I want to look at discipline. And um, not only that you've already heard from the New Testament reading about the discipline that God's people receive from Him, And, and if you were listening it says in, that Hebrew, in, in the Hebrews passage that if you don't receive that from the Lord, then you're not His child. It says you're an illegitimate child if you don't receive discipline from the Lord. Now, that's all of us. And in fact, that passage in Hebrews quotes one of the first passages that we're going to read from, from Proverbs. But also, uh, a lot of Proverbs about parents disciplining children. And, uh, and if you came in late, I'm really, I'm thankful for the announcement that Rex and Ginger Carter gave because they are, Ginger alluded to being at a, a counseling conference and being there as a married woman and as a mom, but benefiting from a talk about singleness just because God's Word blesses people and, and it's powerful. And so I really want to hit this head on. You may be here and you may be married with children or married without children, or you're unmarried with children, or you're single and you're wondering what relevance does this have, have for me. And I just want to echo that, that I hope what you'll find is that God's Word is good for all of us, and that all of us need this wisdom, and all of us need discipline from God. In other words, where, whether or not you and I are parents, uh, or whether or not you had a good experience with your own parents, we need God to parent us. That's all of us. Discipline uh, doesn't sound like a really fun word. It was interesting. I listened to a long interview, a podcast interview, uh, over two hours long with a guy named George Raveling, and I was not familiar with him. He's 81 years old. He, he's an amazing guy. He, um, his, his background is basketball. He was the first African-American uh, head basketball coach in a Pac-8 school. Is it, it was Pac-12, now it's Pac-8, or is it Pac-8 now, now it's Pac-12. Somebody resolve that with your friends after the sermon. But uh, I was going to try to get that straight before I came up here. But 
just, yeah, he's, he's been inducted into a hall of fame. He, through a strange set of circumstances, he owns the physical copy of MLK's I Have a Dream speech. He was up on the platform as a 20-something-year-old when MLK gave the speech in Washington, D.C. And when he came from the podium, this man, you know, George Raveling, was standing there, and he said, Dr. King, that was a wonderful speech. May I have that? And he just handed it to him. So he owns that. Uh, he's a, no big deal. He's, a higher, he's been a higher up at Nike for over 20 years, and just um, he's a voracious reader, voracious note-taker, one of the most alive 80-somethings I've ever heard. And in this interview, he just kept referring to, uh, as he would say, my grandma. And he was raised quite a bit by his grandmother because he lost his father. His father died when he was nine years old. And then when he was 13, his mother experienced a mental breakdown and, and was institutionalized. But he kept just referring extremely fondly and how he had been impacted by his grandmother. He said, my grandmother was the pope. But he actually referred to her spanking him. Now, this whole sermon is not about spanking. Thank you, Lord. But uh, to me, it was just interesting to hear the perspective of someone who has had a very, very full life. And now he is the age of a grandparent and then some. 81 years old, and he's still referring back to this woman who he apparently adored and was formed by, but like could also be extremely firm with him. And, and, I, and I say this from time to time, and I think it's very relevant to these passages. We struggle with both and. Like, I think our minds are more comfortable with either or. Like, either God is severe or he's nice. Either God is um, a God who hates sin or he really loves me. And again and again in Scripture, you get the tension that God is both and. And man, do you see it here. That God, everything that we heard in the assurance of pardon is true. That he's compassionate and gracious. And he's slow to anger. And he does not treat us like our sins deserve. And he disciplines the children whom he loves, both and. So let's look at these. I'm just going to read the first few, and then we'll unpack some of the latter ones. But let's read these first three, beginning with chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, there's so much here that has the potential for being misunderstood. And even if we talked about these passages for hours, we would still come away with questions about what does this mean and how do I do this and what does it mean for me or if we take care of a child, what does this mean for my child? So we come to you with empty hands and we say that what is unclear to us, would you make it clear? 
And we do need wisdom. In whatever state we come, we pray that you would give us wisdom from above because you are loving. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you have heard me refer to this before, or, or you may have seen this term before. I've seen it quoted here and there, but there's a, there's a sociologist named Christian Smith. And several years ago with some other researchers uh, just crunched a massive amount of data about, all right, where are we culturally in our spiritual views? You know, uh, all the predictions that religion and spirituality and, and um, you know, worship or whatever, that all that would go away. hasn't gone away, but, but he's looking at, all right, but what, what does spirituality look like in the United States in uh, early 21st century? Crunched a lot of data, tons of interviews, synthesized all this data. And what it came up with is that the dominant spiritual viewpoint of a younger generation that's coming up, and really this would be a generation that's now hitting its 30s, is what he called moralistic therapeutic deism. Uh, that's kind of jargony. It is jargony. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And, and here's, here's what he meant. Moralistic meant, means uh, the object for me is to be a good person and to be around good people. Be a good person. Uh, be a nice person. That's the moralism. Therapeutic is that I am a person with an entire team of people who are helping me and empowering me to be the best version of me that I can be. So that's everything from parents to therapists to teachers to coaches to mentors to tutors to God are part of this team for me to be the best version of me that I can be. And deism, now if you remember American history, what's deism? Deism is the view that there is a God, and He is the Creator, and He did make the world, but it's sort of like He made the world, and He wound up the clock, and He put the clock on the mantle, and He's not super personally involved with the clock anymore. He made it, it's running, He exists, but He's not personally involved. So moralistic therapeutic deism, I don't really relate to God or need God or depend on God or have to talk a lot to God unless I need him to be part of my team and help me have a better day. That that's the dominant viewpoint. You may feel like, I think that's kind of what I think. He says it's dominant. Now, I, I can't think of anything that would m just fly in the face of moralistic therapeutic deism than to say that God, for his people, is so personally involved. You could even say so intrusively involved that he doesn't just parent them, he disciplines them. And if you were listening, when we read the passage from, from Hebrews 12, it acknowledges, and of course, I love that the Bible is realistic. It says, no discipline is pleasant. It's painful. If it's not, it's probably not very effective discipline that this God is so real and so personal and so powerful and so involved in the lives of his children that he will surgically inflict discipline. It's not driven by justice. It's not retaliation. It's sure not payback. What did we say already? He does not treat us as our sins deserve. But he'll use hard things to grow us and change us. 
That's the God that you get in the Bible, Old and New Testament. So I want to look at what Proverbs is saying about this. So let's, let's think of in, in terms of kind of two points here. First off, we all need discipline. And again, this is relevant for whoever, single, married, divorced, never had a child, used to have a child. All my children are grown up now, whatever. We all need discipline. Second, the next generation needs discipline. All of us need discipline, and the next generation needs discipline. All right, first off, we all need discipline. Proverbs just blanket commends discipline and says, because it's unpleasant, because discipline hurts, the temptation is going to be to avoid it or, you know, if it shows up on the porch, to shoo it off the porch and tell it to go home and let it in. Embrace it and make friends with it. Look at, the, look at the first two again. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. All right, don't sugarcoat it, Proverbs. Tell us what you really think here. Uh, next one, 1532. He who neglects discipline despises himself, but he who listens to reproof acquires understanding. There are all these Proverbs that say you need it, it's great, it brings about all these wonderful things. The New Testament passage said the exact same thing. It brings a harvest of righteousness. So, why would we not like it? Because it hurts. You know, I, I, I remember years ago, somebody recommended a movie to me, and it's about a big robbery. And, and there's this scene where this character played by Danny DeVito, he's talking about money, and he says, yeah, you want money. Everybody wants money. That's why they call it money. And strictly speaking, that doesn't make any sense, but you know what, you know what he means. Yeah, they call it money because everybody wants it. And I thought about that looking at these passages. Yeah, nobody wants discipline. That's why they call it discipline. It hurts. You know, it's not affirmation and comfort and validation. It's things. Um, what kind of discipline do we need? First from God. Be ye young or middle-aged or older. Be ye single, married, or divorced, male or female. We need discipline from God. Uh, look at the next passage, chapter 3. This is the one that the, the New Testament passage from Hebrews quoted this. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Uh, think about what we've already heard. If you don't receive discipline from God, you're not His child. In fact, in, the, in Hebrews, in the King James, it says you're a bastard child. And it also acknowledges that it's painful. And here's the frustrating thing. I think it's going to be frustrating for you as a listener. It's been frustrating for me as the preacher. Is that the Bible doesn't give you a neat, handy definition of how he does it. It doesn't say. And the form that God's discipline will take is it can be all kinds of things. He can affect your emotions. He can affect your body. He can, he can affect your willpower. 
He's God. He's sovereign. We belong to Him. Let me read you something. Now, this is the language is old fashioned, but this is powerful. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if you don't know what that is, that's, that's a doctrinal statement that was drawn up in the 1640s by ministers in the UK, in London. And it's actually the, the doctrinal standard of our church and of our denomination. Listen to this section that talks about the discipline of God. I might read it twice because the language is old-fashioned, but listen. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God. Now, catch that, because this is all about wisdom. Where does wisdom come from? From the wise God, and He's gracious. He's not vindictive. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and the deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled, and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself, and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. And that little phrase at the end is sort of 1640s language for, and he does other stuff that we don't understand. But that's old-fashioned English saying this. One form that discipline might take is that God withdraws you having a felt sense of His nearness. Now, He's still near. And He hasn't changed. And all the promises and all the truths are still true. But you don't feel them like you used to. And so what you feel is your own weakness and your own failings. You watch yourself tripping up more even than normal. And he says when he does that, it's not justice. It's not retaliation. But as a parent, he's letting you hurt. And what is the end of that hurt? To make you feel, if this is me on my own, if this is me kind of just my juice, my resources, this is awful to turn to Him and reach for Him to say, have mercy, have mercy on me. Had He taken away His mercy? No. His mercies, if He gives you His mercies, you have His mercies. But you feel different because He's disciplining you. And here's the thing, guys, I, and this is where I feel like I have to give so many qualifications and nuances that this will be a two-and-a-half-hour sermon, which would be like discipline upon you. I, I don't want us to leave this, and now you're on eggshells about anything that mildly hurts or any setback or any trip up. Ah, he's disciplining me. Go back to what the psalm says. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. And by the way, that should be instructive to parents. If God disciplined all the sin that he could discipline, good grief. We would be disciplined constantly. 
And I, it almost scares me to say it out loud. It's almost more like he hardly disciplines us for anything compared to what he could. Very patient, very slow to anger, very measured. We also need, oh, and by the way, I just need to make sure that I say this. Let that underscore this. It is not God's primary job description to keep us feeling good. And I've seen this in my own life, and I've seen it as I've talked with you, that when we experience real pain, it's like sometimes we're just ready to chuck the faith because we hurt. He's supposed to help me and bless me, and things are bad. What good is he? It is not his job description to keep us feeling good. He loves us and is changing us. Uh, We also need discipline from parents. You know, grown-ups can still say, I needed, and at some level, I still need. Parents in my life, instruction, even discipline. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Remember that, at least for portions of Proverbs, the primary audience may have been something like teenage or 20-something-year-old young men. Chapter 5, verse 5, a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. I'm not going to say a lot about that. I just want to acknowledge before we go to parents and children, it's acknowledging, hey, if you're grown up now and uh, you're not a little kid, you're not at home anymore, still the Proverbs say the discipline you received is a good thing when it was administered well, if it was administered well. We all need discipline. What about how the next generation needs discipline? And this is the part where I was tempted to chicken out. Um, we're about to read some passages that talk about things like beating and the rod. Now, this is always true, but if there was ever a moment where we need to apply the golden rule of Scripture interpretation, it's right now. What is the number one golden rule of interpreting Scripture? Blank interprets Scripture. What goes in the blank? Scripture interprets Scripture. And here's what that means. Anything that we're reading about God's discipline of us, anything that we're reading about parents' discipline of children, has to go with all the rest of Scripture. And so, for instance, that would mean things like for a believer in the New Testament era, disciplining his or her child, he or she is to bear the fruit of the Spirit. What does that already tell us? That parent is to be patient kind, gentle, to exercise self-control. Discipline is not all about the control of the child. There is a self-control on the part of the parent. Uh, Ephesians and Colossians, two other New Testament books, both say, hey, fathers, don't provoke your children. Or some translations say, don't exasperate them. Don't don't use Bible verses uh, as a way for you to bully your child. So all that's true. Let me read you, let me, let me read you what one. Um, it was interesting. This is from a commentary. This is from my most technical 
commentary on Proverbs and like gets into the muckety-muck of Hebrew vocabulary and Hebrew structure and all that. And when it got to some of these passages about the rod, here's what this Old Testament scholar says. The rod must be applied with warmth, affection, and respect for the youth. Warmth and affection, not steely discipline, characterize the father's lectures. Parents who brutalize their children cannot hide behind the rod doctrine of Proverbs. Please hear me on that. All right. What we're after is not to proof text you being brutal or to proof text you harming a child. Discipline can hurt. It is not to harm, and that is a real distinction. And, of course, I feel the weight of those who have abuse in their background, and I want to qualify, 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 nuance, nuance, nuance to the point where I won't be able to say anything. I'm going to have to trust that you hear me, that God is the one who disciplines, that he does not treat us as our sins deserve, that he is slow to anger and gracious and loving, And his discipline is treating us as sons and daughters. And wise discipline emulates what God is like, no matter what you've experienced. So as far as good discipline, what does it look like? And I want to say this too. We're not trying to get back to a golden age. You know, like listen to this. This is from another wisdom book, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes says, do not say... Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Isn't that great? In the wisdom literature, it says, don't try to get back to a golden era. In other words, if we're talking about the discipline of children, we're not trying to say, yeah, kids need haircuts, see? You know, and they need to be seen, not heard, see? Like, let's get back to the Eisenhower years. That's not, that's not the aim. I won't ever do that impersonation again with a cigar. <laughs> kind of a button vest and a factory in the background. I don't know. Uh, We're not trying to get back to the 30s or the 50s or some other era where Proverbs presses you ahead to be wise as you keep walking this road of life. So what does wise discipline look like? I'm going to give you four things. It's love. It's rescue. It's consistent. It's painful. It's love, it's rescue, it's consistent, it's painful. Uh, I'm going to be brief on all these. First off, it's love. Chapter 13, verse 24. And we've already heard, if you neglect discipline, you despise yourself. But look at that same principle now for the parent with the child. 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him gently. Now, this is where we, if you care for a child, you really have to be honest with yourself. Because this is where you can theologically pull a fast one. And here's what it might look like some version of this Uh, Look, I want grace in our family. Uh, I don't want to be about justice and condemnation. I want to be about love and grace and acceptance. And so I want my child to feel that from me. And so 
uh, yeah, I, I'm not going to be about discipline or severity. It's going to be about love and grace. When, when you make that false dichotomy, what you've just essentially said is that God doesn't know what he's doing. God is love. Grace comes from God. We, we experience anything about grace because of God, and he disciplines painfully. And, and here's the sneaky thing, because we talked about how sneaky your heart can be last week. You know what you can actually be doing? Is you can be using love and grace, and I'm not about justice and condemnation, as a way to get off the hook of having to discipline a child because really what's behind it is that I need this child to like me. That's a dangerous place to be. When you, of course, we'd like our children to like us. We'd like anybody to like us. But if I need my child to feel good about everything I'm doing, what is that exposing? If I need my child's acceptance, that means at some level what that child thinks of me is outweighing what God thinks of me. If you need your child to like you and feel good about you all the time, this is going to be a train wreck. It is love to discipline. Counterintuitive, yes, but welcome to the Bible. Second, it's rescue. Let me read a few here. It's rescue. 1918, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. Strong language. 2215, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Next one, chapter 23, 13 and 14. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol. Now, when we say rescue, what do we mean? Ultimately, rescue from a life where you don't know God and don't acknowledge Him and don't walk in His ways. But even pragmatically, in the shorter run, rescue from the foolishness that we all show up with just playing itself out. You know, I remember hearing an older man talk about his experience, and he was saying this as a Christian and as a parent and now a grandparent. He was, I think it was at Disney. He was somewhere with rides with the long lines. And, uh, and he was watching what everybody has seen, and it was the, the, the tired parent with the Tasmanian devil child, and, and they start doing that. Okay, if you've got to stop. All right, I want you to come here. All right, I'm going to count to three. One, two, two and a half, two and three quarters. And this man said he looked around at the rest of the line, and it's just people just scowling at this child. And, and he made an interesting point. He said, when you withhold discipline, you're setting your child up for the scowl of the world to continue. But what it's going to look like as this boy becomes a man or this girl becomes a woman, it's not just going to be like people at the other table in the restaurant going, uh, I wish we had not eaten here tonight. It, it's going to be like a grown-up looking at this man or woman saying, um, we're going to have to let you go. Or, I don't want to be married to you anymore. 
or I hereby sentence you to, the stakes get very high. If these skills are not learned, then they're not learned. And the ultimate rescue would be from not knowing God or moving toward Him. Third thing is that this discipline is consistent. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him, get this part, disciplines him diligently. One thing that you find in diligence is consistency. You know, I mentioned this earlier. The New Testament says, fathers, don't provoke your children. Don't exasperate your children. You know what's a great way to exasperate or provoke a child? Is discipline to be inconsistent and have no rhyme or reason to it. Long stretches where you get away with murder, and then all, all of a sudden I drop the hammer on you, and the child's going, you just sent all the signals in the world that it's okay for me to do that, and now you're so mad at me. They can't articulate that. They're just upset. That's provoking a child. Uh, Again, don't discipline everything, but where you draw the lines, the person who cares for a child, be consistent with what happens when the line is crossed. Discipline diligently. And here's the hard one. It's painful. Uh, The rod can be a metaphor in Scripture. You know, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so it can be verbal. It can be other things. But it can be physical. And I'm not going to give you a methodology of corporal punishment or a list or a guide or a book or a blog or anything. You need to talk about this in community with one another. But I want to acknowledge, yeah, there is such a thing as the rod that hurts. Uh, Last passage. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame on his mother. Correct your son, and he will give you comfort. He also will delight your soul. Um, I got to go to Vietnam this past fall and wanted to read a little bit about Vietnam before I went. And so I, I read this book about a family that they lived... In California, they were very affected by the economic downturn. They moved to Southeast Asia to economically recoup and then come back to the States. And uh, so the wife wrote this book, and it's called So Happiness to Meet You, because that was what her English-speaking friend said to her the first time he met her. He said, So Happiness to Meet You. But she made the observation that uh, she said, You know, I look around, and the children in Vietnam are extremely well-behaved. And in my limited time of a week and a half, I saw this. Uh, They're respectful of parents and grandparents, patient in a waiting room, good at the market, quiet at the post office. I wondered whether such manageable temperaments were formed from infancy or simply part of their DNA. So she says, I brought the topic up one day to the man who came to repair our internet service. He had been chatting with my son, and his English was pretty good. I noticed how really sweet the children are in Vietnam, I said. They are so polite and well-behaved. Ah, yes, he said with a satisfied smile. That's because we beat them. I gasped, and he laughed. You Americans get in trouble for that, don't you? Here the kids are scared of their parents and teachers. That's why they are well-behaved. And so she talks about she's sort of horrified and intrigued, like, I can't believe you said that, but I'm looking around, and it's very different here. Uh, I'm not saying that as 
a condemnation of you smiling about talking about the beating of children, but I, I bring it up to say we're going to be prone to think that, yeah, the way America does it is right. Uh, not necessarily. Again, am I afraid to bring the painful thing to my child because I need my child to like me back or feel good about what I'm doing? I know, by the way, I don't know it like some of you know it, I know that for some of you engaged in foster care, this is a real question mark. Uh, Some of you are in the situation where you cannot enact physical discipline on a child that you care for, and you must obey the law. But maybe you need to process in community what is something that brings an appropriate hurt out of love to help this child. But let me end with this. Um, Did you know there's at least one passage that says that Jesus, who never sinned, was disciplined? Uh, And it's in the book of Hebrews. It says, although he was a son, not adopted, the one natural son of God, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And so strange to, to, to think about Jesus learning something. It says he learned it because God took him through suffering. And here's what I want you to understand. Jesus' discipline went from being a, a suffering of discipline to finally he endured a suffering that was not discipline anymore. Jesus' suffering life, being an obedient son, he finally became a suffering son who was experiencing punishment and justice. And I, I, I want to leave you on this note that the reason that God does not treat us as our sins deserve, especially his children, is because he treated Jesus as our sins deserve. The reason that God doesn't retaliate against his children is because everything that we deserve fell on his son. And at that point, Jesus wasn't experiencing discipline. He was experiencing wrath and judgment so that we don't ever have to. So that I don't have to wonder if I have a car wreck or a bad diagnosis, is God punishing me for my sin? Is God condemning me for my sin? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, we have to hear that over and over and over. And if that doesn't get down in your bones, you're going to wonder if God loves you when you're hurting. And you're not going to know how to emulate it to a child if you care for a child. But man, if that gets in your bones, God is never going to condemn me. He condemned Jesus, so he's never going to condemn me. You can hang on to the tension and know that when I'm hurting, he still loves me. And if I'm caring for a child, I can love this child and let them go through hurt that they might be wise. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, again, I, I, I just acutely feel how inadequate this is. So take all that's true and of your word and cause it to fall on good soil. And where there's confusion, where there's just uh, inexperience, Lord, raise up others, raise up community to process your word that we might love your discipline, welcome it. And if we care for a child, that we might administer it, not harshly, but in a way that shows what you are like. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.